Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Are you renowned for your salad dressing? Or maybe you're a backyard barbecue legend thanks to your sauce. If you're a foodie and have a bit of the entrepreneur in you, the food business just might be your future. And if you live in New Orleans, you're in good company. Culinary entrepreneurship is at an all-time high in the Crescent City, with more innovators jumping on the food industry train every year. On this week's show, we speak with young and established entrepreneurs who are making a mark on the field of hospitality in New Orleans. We begin at Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business with a panel of local professionals discussing how they got their start. Neil Bodenheimer tells us how he navigated the ups and downs of business while establishing his craft cocktail bar, Cure. And Vance Bokrasan shares the remarkable story of his family business, including stories of his father navigating life as an African-American restaurateur in the 1960s. After the panel, we're joined by local entrepreneur Orlando Vega, whose catering and pop-up operation, Congreso Cubano, serves traditional Cuban and Caribbean cuisine. Then, we meet Becky Wasden of Two Girls, One Shuck and Barry Schwartz of My House Social. Those two innovative women fill us in on how they're working together to showcase the New Orleans culinary scene at big events. It's all about building a biz on this week's Louisiana Eats. Whether you're a culinary icon or a relative newcomer in the field of hospitality, the story of food entrepreneurship all begins in the same place, with an idea. And while there are many business stories, each with its own distinct path to success, an entrepreneur's journey is often filled with sacrifice, failure, uncertainty, and for the fortunate few, triumph. To get a better understanding of what happens in the early stages of starting a new business, we turn now to a panel of local hospitality innovators. At Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business, I moderated a discussion featuring four outstanding individuals who are making a mark on the city's food scene. How you doing? My name is Vance Vokrasan. I'm with Vokrasan Sausage Company. The first was Vance Vokrasan, president of Vokrasan Sausage. His family business has been around since 1899 and is the only original food vendor remaining at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Hey, y'all. How you doing? I am Becky the Oyster Girl. Second was Becky Wasden of the all-woman wandering oyster bar company called Two Girls, One Shuck. 
They provide raw and char-grilled oysters at the location of your choice in New Orleans. Um, so my name is Neil Bodenheimer. And Next was Neil Bodenheimer, who brought craft cocktails to New Orleans in 2009 when he opened his James Beard award-winning bar, Cure. Yeah, my name is Zach Engel. Um, Last but not least was Zach Engel, another James Beard Award winner, formerly the executive chef at Shia and culinary director of Pomegranate Hospitality. Armed with a management degree from Tulane, Zach has just opened Galit, his own new modern Israeli restaurant in Chicago. As the youngest entrepreneur of the group, his was the freshest voice to speak to the panel's theme, controlled chaos, getting started in hospitality. Um, well, I can feel that they're all laughing at me right now because they know that what I'm in store for. Um, after years of experience, you're already feeling it. I'm feeling it. So I, I mean, I got started, I would say, a long time ago. Um, when I graduated from Tulane, I went into cooking. I knew that what I wanted to do was open my own restaurant. And that's always been the end game. And so the last 10 years have been leading up to a point where I can actually accomplish that goal. But now that I'm in the thick of it, or like just the beginning of the thick of it, it's like a very interesting experience. I would say an emotional roller coaster. There's highs and lows, and there's also like very laughable moments where you're kind of like, this is literally what I've chose to do. Mm-hmm. It is absolute chaos. There is nothing I can really do that much that's in my control. And it's just kind of funny. Next, we flipped from the newest to the oldest entrepreneur, Vance Vokrasan. He explained the unique conflicts that arise when working in a family business and its multi-generational power dynamics. Well, if any of you come from family businesses or have any peripheral family business that you either chose to be into or were told you have to be into and if you wanted to live in that house. Um, uh, It's something that since from eight years old I was uh, mixing meat, grinding, making sausage, hogshead cheese, things like that. I'm uh, the youngest of three siblings and I was ten years apart from my other two brothers. And one of the challenges in a family business um, you don't always want to go into the family business. Uh, a lot of times it's a lot of long hours, hard work, and uh, my older two brothers just opted not to. One decided to be an opera singer to the world, another one um, still is trying to figure out what he wants to do. Um, and then I just decided to, because of the commitments my family made, to, to do that. Some of the challenges are is that uh, when you're going from generation to generation, I went off to school in Atlanta, got a degree, came back, and uh, my dad was like, okay, here, fix it. And I'm like, okay. And it seemed like in this time when I was away, nothing changed. Time stood still. And we argued every day versus practicality and theory. And every time I brought an idea, he would say, oh, well, you know, I've been doing it like this way for years, your grandfather, and we're not going to change anything. And I said, but if we want to grow, if we want to do anything, we have to make some changes. Like Vance, Becky Wasden grew up in a household with a parent who managed a business, which in turn helped spark her entrepreneurial spirit. Becky explained how she cut a path to own and operate her all-woman company, two girls, one shuck. As 
a woman running my first small business, but watching my mother run her own small business for 48 years in childcare. You know I was working when I was seven, mm -hmm. eight, nine, ten. You just, when you have someone that you look up to, the sacrifice isn't even a sacrifice anymore. It's just a part of your daily existence. <laughs> so when I started my business five years ago, it just felt natural. I recognize the fact that in my own life, I've always loved role reversal. I've always loved to do things that men are supposed to do and vice versa. I like to teach men how to do things that women are supposed to do. And so a friend of mine moved here from Oregon. Boys got drunk in a crawfish boil. She shucked a whole sack of oysters in the dark with one tea light candle. And I had never seen a woman shuck an oyster, not in New Orleans. And I was totally fascinated. So I created the sauces and the condiments, I cut all the lemons, you know, like I created the table display and my friend shucked the oysters. So it was two of us, I slapped her around for a year. And finally she's like, this is a lot of work, you have to help me. <laughs> and so I shucked my first oyster in November of 2013 and loved it immediately. I've always worked with my hands. I'm a, I play guitar, piano, you know, seamstress, tactile, anything. I've been a carpenter, I've done welding. All of that has now been poured into my business nuance, which I did not expect. So any, any tools that you have in your personality or job, any job you've ever had, it's going to come into play at another point in your life. Something that you did when you were 16 for a job, it's gonna come back around when you're a small business owner. And your mistakes. And your mistakes too, that's a very good point. That was Neil Bodenheimer chiming in there. As he explained, establishing Cure in New Orleans was a natural step, following a career working in bars in the Northeast. Neil explained why he chose to open Cure. And the moment he realized, there was no going back. I'm a native New Orleanian, and I, uh, I left and bartended in New York and was very happy up there, and then, and then Katrina happened, and. I think if you, were, if you were born here, you felt a, a calling to come back. I had been working on a bar in New York that would eventually become Cure here, and I just thought to myself, why change it? If I thought it would work in New York, do I think that people in New Orleans are any different? Yes, in some ways we are, but I didn't feel like it needed to be dumbed down. I felt like we had a great tradition of cocktails, and I just started working on it. When you sign the loans, it gets, it gets pretty real pretty fast. And then you go into construction and you go into a significant amount of debt as you're doing it and the stress levels go up. Mm -hmm. Things don't go exactly according mm -hmm. to plan. Never. And then they go up again. <laughs> and then, you know, for us, we, we ran, at, at Cure, we actually ran out of money. And we had to go and borrow more. I ended up putting my personal bar up for sale for the first two weeks. And uh, if, if, if I could, at 42, look back and tell myself at 30, that I was going to do that, I said, I had to tell myself, no way, mm -hmm. you know, a hundred different ways. And it, it worked out for us, but it probably shouldn't have, to be honest. That feeling of flying by the seat of one's pants is something that a lot of entrepreneurs experience when they're first getting started. As Becky got her oyster business on track, there were several moments when it appeared things were coming together. But it wasn't without plenty trial and error. I started the LLC in September of 2014. I was finishing my master's in education. I ran into Ian McNulty, food writer for The Advocate, at an art show about a week later, and I just flippantly said, hey Ian, I just started an all-women's oyster shucking company. <laughs> and he said, excuse me? What did you just say to me? And I said, yeah, my friends are getting married next month, 
So we have one wedding booked, right? I have a company now because I have an LLC and we booked a wedding. And I charge them $300. Now, if, like, if you can wrap your head around that, not, I'm not the money business sense person in my company. I would give everything away for free. So Ian said, can I come to the wedding? And they were personal friends. I said, of course. He wrote an article in October. We got published. And it has been an unstoppable train ever since. I call it the oyster train. I'm just chasing it constantly. I was using an email address from high school, you guys, as like my business things you learn. I was using my personal phone number to have people call me. <laughs> so for the first two years, it was just me chasing the oyster train. I finished my master's. I had two job interviews at schools. I turned them both down at really well-paying salaries. I've never made less money in my entire life. And I've never been happier. The minute I knew that we were a real company. <laughs> um, let's see. It was a conference on the floor of the Superdome for the IPW conference. There were 75 countries being represented in New Orleans. We were asked to do, oh man, 3,000 oysters on the floor of the Superdome with Dr. John and Kermit Robbins performing right in front of us. And I didn't believe it was a real job, so I gave them a price quote. They accepted the price quote. I called my insurance guy to make sure we had the coverage and they were the exact same number. <laughs> so we did the job. I lost money because I had to pay out labor and product, but that there were 24 other restaurants on the floor of the Superdome. That was, that was the day wow. that New Orleans saw Two Girls, One Shuck. I had eight women on floor shucking raw oysters live. It was phenomenal. We had lines, like we had lines on both sides of the table. I get chills. Like just, they gave us one of those little like foam signs, oh. and I keep that in my office. I'm like, you cost me so much money. <laughs> but this was the moment that I was like, this is a real business. Zach Engel listened closely as the other panelists discussed the moment when their vision became reality. With his new Chicago restaurant almost open, at that moment, he could only speak as someone close to achieving their dream. Yeah, I mean, I think it's come, so there's like, it's come in a few different ways. It still doesn't totally feel real. Like until that kitchen is set and the food is in and like guests are walking in, it probably won't really feel real. I'm very fortunate to be able to like, without doing anything, get a significant amount of press for the opening for a lot of reasons, but that has never really felt real. Um, have you guys, do you guys know David Chang from Momofuku Restaurants in New York? He's got a great podcast uh, that I listen to all the time, and he just kind of like talks with other people about hospitality and how it relates to other things. He's always talking like he has imposter syndrome, which is like he never feels like it's real. That's literally how I live my life. Like I never feel like anything that I do is ever actually the real thing, which keeps me moving forward to feel like I have to like, for whatever reason, prove it to people. It's like a motivational tool I have for myself. But, like, so all that stuff never feels real. Like, when I see the stories come out, oh, this restaurant's highly anticipated in Chicago, I'm like, okay, cool, that makes me nervous because I have to live up to the hype. But the big thing is, like, when I wrote that first six-figure check for rent deposit, <laughs> that's when it feels real. Yeah. That's when you're like, I'm playing with the big boys now, and... Everything's on the table. This is like the whole Megillah right now.
When we come back from a short break, our panel discussion continues as we learn about the hardships and triumphs of being a New Orleans entrepreneur. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and with support from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter, dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pimm's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm mufaladas all-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street. We return now to Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business, where earlier this year I moderated a panel of four New Orleans culinary entrepreneurs to learn how they got their start. We spoke about the process of establishing a new business. Now we learn about the hardships that come with running that business, the moments of confrontation, failure, and self-doubt. We pick it back up with Vance Vokrasan, president and third-generation owner of Vokrasan Sausage. Vance filled us in on the story of his family's business and the struggles that come with being an African-American entrepreneur in the past and in the present. He captivated the room as he spoke, beginning with the tales of his father, Sonny, a prolific New Orleans businessman. My dad was uh, quite an entrepreneur. He was probably an undiagnosed ADHD person. He couldn't sit still, and he went from business to business to business. He had a 24-hour package liquor store. He had a cigarette distribution company. He had um, the meat market. He had a real estate company. But then in the mid-'60s, he decided to partner with a guy named Larry Borenstein, who started Preservation Hall. And they decided to open up a Creole restaurant at 624 Bourbon called Vaubersons Cafe Creole. Now, the thing is, at the time, no person of color was allowed to have or had ever had a business post-reconstruction on Bourbon Street. As you know, there's a lot of people in New Orleans that you look at and you think they might be white, and you're like, wait a minute, or what are they? Well, my dad had sky blue eyes and just looked just like a white man. And he navigated the quarter, and no one questioned him when the time came up that they wanted to do this restaurant when they went to open it, they had an organization called the Bourbon Street Merchants Association. I think it still exists today. They had a meeting at the Court of Two Sisters. And my dad went with Larry, and he sat at the table. And a gentleman who owned the business on Bourbon Street came and said, uh, hey, man, how you doing, Sonny? Everything's good? Oh, great, everything, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, he switched. He started looking around the room, and he says, where is he? And they said, who are you talking about? That nigga that's moving on Bourbon Street. 
He's going to have our property values go down. Those people are going to think they can come to our restaurants and do all of this type of stuff. So Larry looked at him and said, hey, man, I know him. I'm going to introduce you to him. So the guy's like, where is he? He said, you know Sonny? He's like, yeah. He said, that's the new on Bourbon Street. <laughs> and the guy my dad told me, he said he turned red, 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 got up and left before the meeting started. My dad says, son, he says, I used to see him all the time. He says, he used to avoid me. He says, not because he was racist, because at that point he was embarrassed, because he knew me as a man. We stayed in the quarter for about nine years. Bourbon Street changed. The restaurant business changed. We sold it, moved out, went back and had our meat market. And then my dad got this big idea. I want to have a sausage processing facility. We struggled for a long time, and then finally they had a gentleman who had a, uh, the largest grocery store chain in the city, John Schwegman. We finally got in Schwegman's, and then from there we went to Winn-Dixie, we went to Canal Villery, we went to uh, Sam's, we went to all of them and got in their stores. We started doing this, the Orleans Paris School Board, Jefferson Paris School Board, and in, in that time frame we had people who told us, we're going to put y'all out of business. We had processors that said, oh, we'll put you out of business all because we were a minority company. They didn't want us to come into those play areas to try to make and, and, and bid us out. The stuff they were doing, we knew it was illegal. And they did whatever they could, but we stayed. We had, we went so much debt. We had lines of credit maxed trying to compete just to float money to bid and bring all this stuff in. We just kept fighting. Eventually, they called us and said, we want to wave the white flag. We want to go ahead and say, look, you keep these, your products, and let us have the rest. I said, well, we're going to keep our products, and we're going to take a few of the other ones just because you put us through this foolishness. <laughs> and everything was good, and then Katrina hit. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that I learned is called crisis management. Unfortunately, we don't have time for Vance's post-Katrina tale in this episode, but you can access the whole conversation online. I'll tell you how after the panel. Next, we turned it back over to the newest entrepreneur, Zach Engel. I asked him about his troubles trying to get that new restaurant open in Chicago. I'm in this interesting phase that stuff just keeps happening poorly. Uh, I took over an existing restaurant space. Everything's set up, design's great, we're good, we're rolling. And then like dumb little things that keep adding up, like there's no shutoff valves for any of the water except for one. So if I turn off the dishwasher to fix it in the middle of service, I have to shut off all the water of the restaurant. So now you gotta pay a plumber to put shutoff valves everywhere. Water heater broke, not because of us, because of potentially landlord negligence before we got the space. So then it's like, Oh, $10,000. Like, you just have to spend it because you don't have an option. You're not going to pass a health inspection without hot water. Not that I wasn't going to work hard, but now there's 17 million things on the back that are like, now you got to work harder to get that money back. And so it's like, I'm in this interesting part where it's consistently just like hitting you with little pebbles until you like try to give up, but you just kind of have to keep going. Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, it's crazy. Neil Bodenheimer of Cure spoke next. Well, I mean, I will say that I think that brings up a, a great point. You, there are so many highs and lows in this business, and trying to keep level 
I think is, is, is critically important because if you go on that emotional roller coaster, you're going to drive yourself crazy. For us, I mean, closing, closing a business, it, you know, it's hard. You know, you, you put a lot into a business to get it, to get it going. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't ego in it and pride. And when you do it and you, and you have to make those decisions, it's hard not to go into, you know, into a funk about it. When bad times happen, the, the strong survive. And you just have to make sure that you know that bad times are going to happen. It's not always going to be great. But you have to do your best to try and know that, that bad times are going to end and good times will start. But you have to be strong to get to the good times. Becky Wasden of Two Girls, One Shuck remarked on the problems that can arise when you've had too much success. We started growing so quickly that by year three, I had purchased enough equipment to do four events a day at the same time. Imagine we do a lot of weddings and there are certain calendar dates where we were training down 12 brides. So I just plowed forward, staffed up. We have two dozen girls on staff right now. And that was spring of two years ago. And it was not fun. It just wasn't fun anymore. It was so grueling. We were burning out the girls. We were burning out the equipment. We were just constantly on the go. I really had to like check myself and say, where is the joy in what we're doing? I also like the bigger we grew, the farther I have become from the clients, which is hard for me. I'm, I'm a people person. I love to meet people. I love to know them, shake their hand know their name, know their kids. You know, I'm just really, that's an intimate part of why I started the company. So that's been very hard for me to just trust that the brand itself just really resonates with people. If I'm ever really, really frustrated or down, I'll just go on a job. I had a last minute sub in for a wedding last weekend. Having coordinated with this bride for a year and a half, a year and a half of your life, you talk to these people. You know their names, you know their parents' names, you know their event planners' names, you, like, you really get to know them personally. To be able to be there with her and her family, and they just loved everything we did for them. She asked to take a photo with us. <laughs> That's the moment when the bride is like, can I have a photo with you? Oh, yes, how cool is that? So, it, those are the little joys, the people. Vance Vaucresson picked up where Becky left off, explaining the exhilaration he feels when he's developed positive relationships with his customers. When you meet those customers, when you service them with the best of your ability, and they come back over and over again, and they come and they tell you stories about your product, about how they had some type of um, momentous memory that involved your product and participation. I'll do a festival and I get people like, I can't even be in my booth anymore at Jazz Fest or French Quarter Fest because if I do, people want to stop and talk to me and they want to tell me stories and they want to And my wife is sitting there saying, can you move please? I got to serve these people. <laughs> the thing is, that's when you know you've done something. When they come back, I got a guy that comes to Jazz Fest every year. They open the gates, I can see him running, first day, mm -hmm. from Chicago. Mm -hmm. He comes running. Now he's got a limp, he's a little older, but he comes every <laughs> year. He runs, and he comes, he says, I want to be your first customer every year. I love this stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and that in itself is all that you need. With all the struggles and all the pain, it's those, those customers, that's why you're doing this. You're doing it for them. 
Because without them, you have nothing. When they leave you, their mouth is the best marketing. They will tell somebody. And with social media the way it is, mm -hmm. one post can make you or set you back. Customer service is tantamount. So that's, that would be the thing, the, the, the joy of serving your customers. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of joy. Again, Neil Bodenheimer. Um, I think it's taking care of your guests. And mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, one of the things that we talked about when we talked about the agony is getting away from the things that you love about the business. That's where the agony comes in, is when, you're, is when you step away from the things that got you in the business. Mm -hmm. And when those creep up, and they creep up every day, mm -hmm. but it's focusing on the things of why you do it. I mean, I get joys, I get a lot of joy from my guests, but I get even more joy sometimes from my teams. Mm -hmm. I just love them. And it's about being around different people and about trying to achieve a common goal. And I just think that there's something really gratifying about it. And, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's people enjoying your product. Sometimes it's the relationships you make with your guests. It's the relationships you make with your people mm -hmm. uh, and your teams. And it's just, just in general, just striving to do something that you think is good and, and saying, hey, hey world, I think this is good. I hope you do too. That was Neil Bodenheimer, Zach Engel, Becky Wasden, and Vance Bokrasan speaking with me at Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business. A video of the entire discussion, produced by Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay, is available for viewing on our Louisiana Eats YouTube page. Visit poppytooker.com for the link. Now that we've heard from four local food entrepreneurs, we turn our attention to a company in New Orleans that's helping one of them achieve success. Barry Schwartz is the founder of My House Social, a business that works to showcase local food talent. She joined me in the studio along with Becky Wasden of Two Girls, One Shuck to explain what it is her company does. So today, My House Social is a company based in New Orleans, but we work all over and we create custom menus for the private events industry, working with corporate events and weddings, venues all over the city of New Orleans to connect people to local chefs, restaurateurs, caterers, food trucks. My House Social didn't start off exactly as it is today. No. Your company has morphed <laughs> yes. tremendously over time. Yeah, it has been quite an evolution. Um, so I moved to New Orleans um, right when I graduated college. I was 21 and overly confident that I could get any job I wanted, which was not the case and a harsh reality when I moved to a new city knowing nobody. Um, and I was waitressing at Coquette. And my whole life had always loved dinner parties and had always been like the non-chef that's friends with the chefs and like hanging out in the kitchen. And there was an amazing pastry chef at Coquette, Nini Nguyen, who was actually just recently on Top Chef. And she was from New Orleans East and was like, my grandma has all these amazing Vietnamese family recipes. And I would love to do a dinner party where I make my grandma's food. And I was like, I'm really good at getting people to 
go places. <laughs> I think I could sell some tickets and we could like combine forces and you just worry about the food. And she was like, that's awesome. You should do this with a bunch of different chefs and just call it my house and do it at your house. And I was like, that's a really great idea. So that is what we started doing. And Nini and I sold out. And then all of a sudden, all these chefs at Coquette were like, I want to do a My House event. I want to do a My House event. And things morphed from there. Totally different from what we do now. Also, Barry, your food truck venture was um, a little bit more of a focus of the whole business at yes. one time, wasn't it? Yeah. So that was almost like the round 1.5. <laughs> um, so we do the Louisiana Street Food Festival in Baton Rouge, and we still like love and work with a lot of the original food trucks. But sort of the evolution of the business was that I realized that all of the food truck owners I worked with really wanted different outlets to more economic opportunities. And at the food truck festivals, when it was good, it was really good. But when it rained, they still had to pay a fee to be there and they lost money. Mm. And when we did our first catering event, which just happened by chance, I realized, wow, that's a guaranteed payment for chefs. And a lot of chefs I know don't always know how to or want to promote themselves to get corporate events and weddings. So that was how we morphed into what we are now, which is more of like a curator between the chef world and the event world. That's so fascinating. And Becky, you often have had an opportunity to work with Barry on some I of have. her projects. Yes. We've seen each other through many years of evolution. Yes. <laughs> it's particularly exciting when we collaborate with people like My House Social because first and foremost, they can get us in touch with clients that we may not have found ourselves. The first few years when Two Girls, One Check was starting to get a little bit of traction in the city, that's when My House, NOLA at the time, and has now evolved to My House Social, that was a really foundational change for us, being paired with other chefs that were doing higher-end parties, including weddings. Uh, it was very exciting to see our exposure become so vast because we started to get these amazing collaborations. I mean, we work with actually over 65% of our clients are destination, and they you know, we're always trying to show them not only Louisiana, but be like, do you want vegan ice cream sandwiches? Do you want a drip affogato bar? And everybody is like, we want golf oysters. We want local food. And we want to highlight the chefs and people that are doing that. And yeah, I mean, working with Two Girls, One Shuck, besides the fact that they use these amazing golf oysters, is the customer service and, like, the way they make us feel is sort of unparalleled to anything I've ever seen. Like, they are smiling no matter what. We have worked together in, like, near hurricanes, mm -hmm. pouring rain, and... There's everybody on the team of Two Girls, One Chuck will just pick up, find a location that works best. They'd come prepared and they take care of everything they take care of. And it's so beautiful. When we come on site, it's extremely simple. Full amenities, traveling oyster bar by design, meaning my goal designing my business was to go into any venue, any person's home, any property and have the host of the party provide nothing. The ease of us coming with table, linens, ice, oysters, condiments, and then on the flip side, taking everything away was equally as important. But to go from 
pushing the envelope on what was once a 25 cent oyster to providing a service that is an actual oyster experience. We've come a long way, baby. And we do make payroll. And I'm very proud of that. That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm so proud to know the both of you. Thank you. Um, If you had any advice for the budding, let's just go all the way and say female entrepreneurs, shout out to the girls here. What would would you all say to the ladies out here dying to become the next Becky the Oyster Girl or the (laughs) most social berry? (laughs) What would you say? I would say do not let a field that might be heavily male-dominated stop you from making change. And I've been incredibly lucky that from the very beginning of this concept, I have had 100% support from every industry member, be it male or female, every distributor, every vendor, every shucker, every restaurateur, every chef I've ever met. No one has ever said, what do you think you're doing? Every single one of them have looked at me and said, you go, girl. This is fantastic. So go big. Even if it seems to be a job that only a man could do or maybe once you just saw a man doing it, we can do it too. Since I've started my business, actually like three of my very close friends have also started food businesses in New Orleans. And I've had countless other people tell me like, what's the secret sauce? Mm. And Just to generalize for the sake of making this point, I think a lot of social conditioning between the difference between men and women is men have just been like lifted up to like, you can fake it till you make it and it's all going to work out. And I think that us as women, we need a little bit more of a push to fake it till we make it. Like we want to be like, we're only going to present ourselves when we know we're the expert. We can be perfect. We can do it. And what I tell people is that's not possible with entrepreneurship. And if you have an idea in your head, it's never going to be the same once you actually start implementing it. So just hit the ground running and start doing it. And you will find that confidence. And like once you hit the ground running, you've created this baby snowball Mm -hmm. that's going to keep building and building and building. And the momentum is what we need to create for ourselves and only we can create that and I think it's something that like whenever people have an idea out there the worst thing that happens is it doesn't work out and you have a really cool thing to add to your resume and the best thing that happens is you find your passion and you grow something beautiful and affect all these people in positive ways. Barry Schwartz of My House Social and Becky Wasden of two girls, one shot. Where can New Orleans food startups go when they're just starting out? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Are you a bar or restaurant owner, or do you work in a bar or restaurant? Get involved this year with Dine Out for Life, 
Crescent Care's largest annual fundraiser. This year, we're making a full week of it, starting on Sunday, June 2nd, with a dim sum drag brunch at Maypop, sponsored by Monkey Shoulder. They're taking brunch reservations at Maypop now, but every restaurant and bar can be involved in this year's Dine Out for Life. All proceeds from Dine Out for Life benefit Crescent Care, a full-service health provider with sliding fees designed specially for the hospitality industry. Learn more at crescentcarehealth.org. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Where can New Orleans food startups go when they're just starting out? Whether it's a certified kitchen for recipe testing or a food production facility that's needed, it's all available here for the asking. When you're starting out, keeping costs low is essential. For a mere $25 an hour, Newcomers can have access to the Rouse's Culinary Innovation Center, housed within our home, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. It's a certified commissary kitchen where small-scale baking and other food production is possible. SoFab is also willing to sell an entrepreneur's products from the museum's gift shop. What happens when sales exceed the capacity of SoFab's kitchen or when goods require shelf-stable packaging? That's when the New Orleans Food and Farm Network comes into play. They operate a 10,000-square-foot facility in Norco, where products can be bottled or packaged for grocery stores and out-of-state distribution. Making the jump onto those grocery store shelves is often the acid test for a food startup, and edible enterprise tenants get that help from the start. First, the state health department requires a thorough written processing plan. The application covers sourcing, handling, washing, storage, manufacturing, and marketing. Great experience for any first-time entrepreneur. Also essential is the recall plan. From day one, tenants are asked to show all purchasing records to allow for full traceability. When the New Orleans Food and Farm Network took possession of the facility, there were only three tenants. Today's number exceeds 30, an indicator of the burst in culinary entrepreneurism taking place in New Orleans right now. I'm Poppy Tooker. And those local food startups are making some good Louisiana Eats. My name is Orlando Vega of Congreso Cubano. Orlando Vega is a Miami transplant and the son of Cuban immigrants. Orlando has taken his passion for his grandmother's Cuban meals and turned it into a thriving catering business, Congreso Cubano. He stopped by our studio to tell us all about how he's keeping his Cuban roots alive here in New Orleans and how he plans to take over the world. Congreso Cubano was a, was a brainchild of just uh, homesickness. 
I uh, one day decided to make uh, some medianoche sandwiches, and everyone loved them. And then I think one day I decided to make some carne asada, and everyone loved it. And then uh, the next day, my friend and I posted up outside the Marangi Opera House with a table full of Cuban sandwiches. I didn't even have a name. I think we had 20 sandwiches there and some fried plantains. And uh, we sold out in half an hour flat. And when someone asked us, what are you guys called? My my good friend Paul just blurted out, Congreso Cubano. <laughs> and we lived on Congress Street. And, uh, and uh, it stuck. I loved it. And I rolled with it. And it has become the beast it is today. Well, it really has become a beast. You know, you may have popped up on a lot of people's radar when you appeared in 2017 for the first time at Jazz Fest. You don't have bricks and mortar, but you got a big catering business. So mm-hmm. tell us about all that. I'm, I'm trying to sell the story more than make uh, than we are making a huge profit every night. We're not selling food uh, that's high luxury. And our mission statement is to share these, these the flavors of Cuba that we feel have such a significant place in New Orleans history, to share those flavors with our community and share them in a non-alienating way. This is cocina, uh, comida casera, y cocina casera. This is home food. This is sharing food. This is family food, where it comes from. And um, we don't, we don't want to dress this up. We don't want to, I don't want to serve you my grandmother's dish for $40, you know, full of bells and whistles and with all the frills and and we want to serve this to you the way we grew up enjoying it, which is a non-alienating, humble, uh, inviting, uh, in an inviting way. So we love our story. We love what the story our food is trying to tell. But also it's a story of knowing your limitations. The only capital I invested when we started this was my tax return for 2015, I think it was. <laughs> and slowly, you know, I started rolling croquetas out of the trunk of my Honda Element and putting things together in little picnic tables and yards without any equipment. And it was it was very organic. Um, and we wouldn't be here without the friends and family supporting us. But yeah, we had a lot of limitations. We still do. We don't have a brick and mortar. So it's all about really sitting down every month and saying, how much more can I bite off for the next month? How can I grow this 5%, you know, in the absence of a half a million dollar check to, to turn this into your dreams overnight? It's a matter of Little baby steps. It sounds to me like authenticity is one of your biggest credos. Absolutely. I don't feel that food is sacred or recipes are sacred, but I do think recipes should be respected. I'm all about changing and evolving and influencing foods. I don't think uh, a a country's food or a country's traditions should be uh, static but you do have to respect the context of that food and make sure that no matter how you change that food, it is projecting and it is communicating the same thing that it always did, if that makes any sense. What comes next for Congreso Cubano? What comes next for Congreso Cubano? Uh, the world. Uh, we're we're going to take over the world. We are currently in the process of expanding our catering options uh, and our catering operations. And we are always exploring the opportunities for brick and mortars and so on. But uh, we, we're in no rush. We, we really love our, our values. We really love our mission statement. And we feel very lucky that people four years later, you know, most restaurants fail in the first year or two. So that four years later, people still find our food and our flavors to be as fascinating as they do. Um, 
it's just a, it's a godsend. It's a blessing. Well, I think New Orleans is lucky to have such an authentic piece of Cuba here in thank you. you. So thank you so much for telling us your story and coming to see us on Louisiana. Oh, it is my thank absolute you. pleasure. Muchísimas gracias. That was Orlando Vega of Congreso Cubano. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Have you visited poppytooker.com lately? That's where you'll find our full broadcasts, along with our quick bites for podcasting or webcasting, and special videos from producers Jonathan Evans and Marion Gay. That's all on poppytooker.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau and Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.